This is a podcast from 3RRR, 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Good morning, everybody, and welcome to Einstein and Go-Go. I'm Dr. Shane. Uh, we've got an hour for science, uh, of science for you, and uh, we have three great guests today that we're going to speak to, and I have my uh, well, my favourite team, although I do say that regardless of who's in the studio. <laughs> in here is Dr. Ray. Good morning. Good morning, Dr. You're Shane. You're well? Uh, I am well, thank you, actually. Yeah. Mm, good. I have to say. Dr. Catherine? Good morning. Yep. You've been stepping it out this week, too. I've been noticed on their little pedometers, you know, we're challenging each other, and yes, you're leaving me. A long way behind. I had a birthday this week, so I thought I'd better start um, trying to be- become more fit as I'm getting older. So. <laughs> well, more steps each week. <laughs> Speaking of fit, Chris KP. I don't have a, uh, a step monitor, but I estimate. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> 2,000 steps a day? Uh, 20. Yeah. 20? 20 steps yeah, a day. Yeah. Yeah, I'm just very yeah. clumsy. Yeah. Yeah. Now, I just got you to Google something, and yes. I'm very disappointed because I, I actually thought today was nude gar- International Nude Gardening Day, but you're telling me it was well, yesterday. Uh, your disappointment may be tempered um, for two reasons. It, it, apparently, World Naked Gardening Day was officially the first Saturday of May, mm. um, so yesterday. But I'm, on the other hand, I'm assuming that most of our listeners would have embraced the day. Um, yeah. Yeah. And it's still there's still nude gardeners somewhere in the world, which I'm makes sure, me happy. Watch out for those secateurs. <laughs> 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 Indeed. Well, it is a science show. We're going to start off with some news, folks. So, uh, Dr. Ray, we'll jump in with you. What do you got for us? Well, Dr. Shane, I, I, I have a question for you. <laughs> if, if you had three arms and someone across the, uh, the, 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 the little bench here said something silly and you wanted to hit them in the back of the head because they said something silly, but all three arms could reach... Which one would you use? Well, given the Scruiscay P, it'd be the one mm. on the left. Okay. Mm. Yeah. See, what you would be suffering from would be <laughs> hyper-redundant arms. Hyper-redundant arms. And I've always thought you had hyper-redundant arms. You know, and, and, and so <laughs> the, a creature that has hyper-redundant arms, and we still don't understand quite how it moves around, is the octopus. Okay, yeah. So researchers uh, have uh, have just put out a very interesting study uh, from, I'm so sorry, uh, from a couple places, uh, from two different universities in Israel, where they actually track the motion of an octopus to find out some surprising things about how it moves. First and foremost, an octopus, while it has bilateral symmetry, unlike, say, a starfish, which is, has radial mm-hmm. symmetry, actually can move independent of the direction it's looking. And, and this is quite fascinating, that it could be looking straight at you and be shuffling to the left. And, and they actually looked at, at how these things are connected by tracking the motion of the octopus, and they actually think that the brain has kind of independent motions, that it just says, oh, move left, and it doesn't necessarily connect with I'm looking at you to actually almost have separate motor controls for where it's facing versus how it's moving. And it can actually rotate independently. So it could like look at, at Dr. Shane, which is looking in front of me, and then turn to the right to look at Chris KP while, while by moving out the studio door, which is behind me, all at the same time. Good batsmen in cricket do that. Good Absolutely. Dancer. They do. Um, and dancer. And, 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 <laughs> Great dancer. Are you going to sing a song for no, Octopus's God? And just, oh dear. <laughs> He's a good singer, this guy. Uh, I'm sure he is. <laughs> just a line. Come That's on. very sweet. No. <laughs> uh, but, but in the last final thing, though, is it's also fascinating that octopi arms move non-rhythmically. So an octopus could never march. Because it just it has little short elongations and, and contractions, but how it'll move whichever arm it needs. It's not like it moves the one on the far left and the one on the far right. It use, uses whichever one's most convenient at the time. Wow. And uh, and so this type of locomotion is quite unique to an octopus. 
And, uh, and and they still don't understand quite how the brain works on the octopus on this, but nobody had really ever systematically tracked this motion. So there's no connection here to the way spiders walk, obviously. I mean, they have the same number of legs. Yeah, they have hyperodontity yeah. too. But do, no. do they do they do it in the same? Because they seem to have a sequence. Like you watch them, it's sort of you know three, two, five. Six, you know, like their, their legs seem to walk in sequence. Yes, yes. No, octopi don't. They, they actually that's the thing. I mean, I, I assume they they actually look for you know even more complex mm. patterns. But mm. there was no real rhyme or reason to it. It was just whatever was in the right place at the right time. Even though a number of legs could have been in the right place at the right time to help it propel that way. That's very cool. Cool stuff. They're astonishing. Dr. Catherine, what do you got for us? Thanks, Dr. Shane. I have some news this week about air pollution and the impact of air pollution on pregnant women. So you may remember back in 2008 when China hosted the Olympic Games. Mm. And at the time, as you know, China's um, one of the countries most affected by air pollution. Um, And in fact, the rates of air pollution um, in China are sometimes 25 times sort of the safe limits known elsewhere around the world. So it's a big, significant problem. And at the time when China hosted the Olympic Games, the government were committed to reducing air pollution mm, during that yep. period. Um, so there was a seven-week period where um, they were quite successful in reducing air pollution. So they did measures such as um, stopping construction, reducing the number of vehicles on the roads, um, cutting down um, factories in, in industry for that period of time. And they were successful in reducing re- um, air pollution rates. Um, so some things like sulphur dioxide, um, carbon monoxide, particulate matter, these types of um, pollutants were reduced between sort of 18 and 60 percent. But what this created was a unique natural experiment for scientists where we had a situation in Beijing with severe air pollution leading up to the Olympic Games, a seven-week period with reduced air pollution, and then unfortunately it went back to severe air pollution Mm. afterwards. So this week there's been some research come out of the University of Rochester Medical Centre, and this, this work is published in the Journal of Environmental Health Perspectives, if you're interested in reading into it more. And these researchers were looking at the impact of of reducing air pollution on people who were living in Beijing and pregnant at the time. And it's really quite fascinating. So they compared women who were pregnant in the year prior to the Olympic mm-hmm. Games, um, those who were pregnant during the Olympic Games and those who were pregnant in the year following the Olympic Games. And the children who were born um, when their mothers had been pregnant over the Olympic period were actually much heavier, so 23 grams heavier at birth wow. than those born either side of the Olympic Games. So that's a – I mean, that's not an insignificant number. No, no. Yeah. In, in, in context of the, the size of a small baby, it's actually quite – a lot. Wow. And that would suggest healthier babies yep, as well. Yep. And healthier mothers. Yeah, absolutely. So, the interesting thing about this was, though, it was only seen in women who were in their eighth month of pregnancy during okay. that time. Uh-huh. So we didn't see it in people who were sort of only one or two months pregnant. It was at those final weeks of pregnancy where the difference yep. occurred. That explosive period where, where all of a sudden you go from <laughs> you, you're, pregnant, you're pretty pregnant to oh boy, <laughs> <laughs> you're ready to go. And there is, there's a there's, I always noticed there seems to be an acceleration there where, you know, things are really growing fast. Yeah, I mean, you know, absolutely. Yeah. That's and exactly so that, what happens in those last few weeks. Is that right? Physical growth really accelerates development of the central nervous system, musculoskeletal right. system, um, really accelerates during those last few weeks. So we just need to fly all those pregnant mums <laughs> somewhere a bit more secluded for that, that last month and hopefully sort that problem well, out. Well, it'll be interesting to see, you know, it'll be interesting to compare other, you know, health parameters of, of those kids mm. across those, those periods of time because, I mean, you know, there are plenty 
mothers that would say, I'd happily take a slightly smaller child at the point of birth, frankly. Yeah. <laughs> it wasn't a long-term yeah. impact of this. It's the head size. It's the head. Size, <laughs> it's it's the head. It's, it's, the, it's, it's the head, you know. So <laughs> once the head, that's, where, that's what I'm told. I don't know. Well, interesting stuff. Well, China obviously has a big pollution problem, and um, it's mm. interesting to see this direct evidence as yeah. a result of, uh, you know, one-off sporting events. Absolutely. Jeez. And it's not just childbirths. It's we, yeah. it's, it's generated other research, yeah. stroke, heart disease, yeah. cancers, yeah. Yeah, lots sure. of issues. Mm. Mm. Interesting stuff. Chris KP? I would like to also pose a question of the panel, uh, if I may. As you know, bats uh, fly around at great speed. I can tell you, up to you know, on, on the way to you know, thirty-five k's an hour at times. They in, in closed spaces where it's often very dark. How do they know where they're going? Sonar. Exactly. Except that pause a moment, if you will. Okay. <laughs> because that's exactly what I well, uh, in fact said. Um, because I, I sort of read. A, a brief, Do they remember? Well, I, I had a snippet of this article, like a, re, a brief sort of byline, and went, "Yeah, well, they go around with the sonar. Is this new?" And then I looked into it, and what? And it made me pose a question. Hang on a moment. Picture yourself as a bat. Picture yourself in a room, you know, where there's, in my mind, there could be four or five, the equivalent of four or five people in like a square meter, mm-hmm. flapping your arms yep. with all different intents, going different directions. Is is squealing at a wall really going to help you work that out? Because you know what the person next to you is doing. You know squealing what, at a wall. Exactly. But which wall and what are they trying to do and, and all that. So you must be able to determine your own squeal. Except for a start. Mm. But you must also be able to determine tiny anything that changes near you. And you can't just turn your face and squeal at that bit all the time. You never know where it's going to be. So, a bunch of scientists uh, from uh, several universities uh, in the US, um, neuroscientists, started to wonder about exactly the same question, and they started looking at what a bat might have, what, what it might have in its arsenal beyond just the listening to bits of things bouncing back and forth. Um, and they, they plotted the uh, the distribution of nerves. And what they found is the distribution of nerves in bat wings are totally different to any other mammal falling. Hmm. There are clusters of particular nerves in parts of their wings. And when you look at those clusters, they're around hairs. They then found that these hairs are, in fact, highly sensitive to the movement of air around them. They literally puffed air at bits of bat wing wow. and, watched the, uh, and watched the neural pathways trigger off. So they found that they've actually got um, a, a highly sensitive series of air movement sensors on their wings. So while they're flapping around and squealing at the wall and at each other, they're actually sensing what's going on around their, their wings, which is not just near them, but it's near their extremes. So they can work at the entire 3D space around them as well as squealing at stuff. Um, and, it, yeah, it looks like that's actually as important as anything else in terms oh, of getting around. Interesting stuff. Well, presumably um, other creatures that use sonar must have similar... That's you what know, I very high speed creatures, dolphins and so yeah. forth. You wonder whether they have similar capacity. Um, well, I've heard that do- dolphins so have got like the uh, the weird, you know, sort of electrosensitivity mm. sensitivity thing in mm. their skin. So maybe that's their equivalent, mm. but I don't know how it's distributed. Interesting stuff. Mm. Now, uh, it's been a big week. I, I should say, actually, before I get onto my news, uh, bravo to ScienceWorks. Um, I went to their robot workshop. Oh, yes. Yesterday with my son, and uh, you know I like to hide down the back. I don't like to tell them that I'm from the show, because <laughs> although I wouldn't mind having the big robot, um, I find you know you you get a better insight um, if you kind of hide away um, with a dark mask on. Um, and it was it was great actually. So this is something uh, they offer up to members um, of Museum Victoria, and I I assume it was pretty full up when we booked mm-hmm. in. But if there is an opportunity there, folks, it was really well done. So we got. I don't know, kids around the age of seven or eight, um, they have these um, robot workshops to build robots. So it was a couple of hours. It was, it was great. Really enjoyed it. Now, uh, some news. Uh, first of all, the NASA Messenger probe, you know, the one that's hanging around Mercury? Or yes. was? Yes. 
sadly after just over four years folks it's run out of fuel which means its orbit has decayed and it crashed into um, Mercury not by accident I mean NASA knew this was going to happen Left a whopping big crater though, 16 meters wide. Wow. So it was moving. Um, at 14,000 kilometers per hour. Really? Yeah, yeah that's pretty fast. Mm. So, uh, I think, I think, I think we'll make a dent at that speed. So, yeah, it's pretty. Anyway, um, but look, uh, they've brought back some amazing pictures of Mercury and they're really detailed stuff. So really cool. Now, the other thing that's exciting this year, remember July. I mean, the big thing's yes. coming out this year, right? Um, we've got July, we've got, uh, the New, New Horizons, Horizons, uh, probe getting to, the soon-to-become-planet Pluto. <laughs> uh-huh. um, and then in December, of course, we've got the new Star Wars film. And, and I should, before we forget, Dr. Ray, we should yes. say to everyone, for tomorrow, May the 4th, May with the you. 4th be with you. <laughs> anyway, um, but uh, the images are starting to flood back already from um, the New Horizons craft. And because it's about 80 days away from Pluto now, so it's starting to get close. And, you know, we've always had this sort of uh, slightly orangey-tinged blob which was the best we could get from Hubble, amazing as Hubble is, 25 years old, of um, Pluto, and we knew nothing else. But um, the images coming back now from um, from New Horizons are starting to show um, what sort of, they almost look like land masses, so they think it's probably like polar ice caps. So there's actual serious features on this soon-to-be planet. <laughs> you're, like, you're like that guy that hasn't realised that you know, just, you, your girlfriend you've, you've broken up. Like, <laughs> it's over. Okay. Although I will say, as a result of Game of Thrones and a certain actor, <laughs> yeah. the term dwarf now, dwarf planet, actually might be the one you want to go with. Yeah. yeah. So yeah, yeah. you know, who totally. knows? Yeah. But um, anyway, so this is going to be an exciting few months as these images start coming in and we get more and more detail. And people of this object. People should get excited, by the way, um, if for no other reason for reasons of um, of patriotism, because there are only I think three deep space communication places that are carrying images of uh, of the New Horizons thingy and one of our, one of them is Tidbinbilla it's mm, one of ours mm, um, mm. so we're going to be yeah gathering images whatever yeah. they are and for those of us who are old enough to remember this back in the 80s and Catherine <laughs> I'm not looking at you um, <laughs> but I'm looking I at remember. you Chris KP, um, you know when those images were flooding in um, from the Voyager 1-2 yeah. craft of the outer reaches of our solar system you know being Neptune and and, mm-hmm. and Uranus and Jupiter and Saturn I mean it was an amazing time it was and, yeah, and we had and to be fair we had these crappy little televisions and it was an amazing time I mean the stuff that we're going to get in our high definition imaging I mean we don't remember it that way we remember these awesome pictures awesome awesome but you know these crappy little cathode ray tube um, televisions we all had you know, this time round, we're going to get high definition imaging from NASA. That's just going to look extraordinary. Yeah, we'll cool. get the best detail of um, of the soon to become planet uh, Pluto or dwarf planet might be. Yeah, who knows? Uh, which is which is going to be great. So I think um, watch this space. We'll be reporting on this as it um, as the information comes in. But uh, I'm not sure exactly how I'm going to put those pictures up on our radio show. Um, but I'm sure Liv can Liv can tweet them. That's yes. the amazing thing about yeah. uh, social media. Triple. Now, uh, we uh, hopefully have on the phone uh, Dr. Ted Edwards, who is an honorary fellow from the CSIRO Australian National Insect Collection in Canberra. Ted, can you hear us? Yes, indeed, Jane. Now, Ted, uh, you have been working on this um, Enigma moth, which we actually, I remember uh, Chris KP, who's in the studio with me, uh, did some news on this when the discovery first came out. But um, this is quite an extraordinary moth. Tell us a bit about it. Um, it's a very, it's it's a moth that retains a lot of features that we associate with the very early 
branches of the moth um, evolutionary tree. Mm-hmm. Um, so um, many moths have come much more than that and developed in different ways and so on. But this has got lots of features that we associate with the very early family trees of moths. So, so when, when you talk about those features, I mean, what sort of things are we talking about? Um, we're talking about a wing coupling system. We're talking about um, various structures within the head and the thorax. We're talking about uh, the um, alignment of veins in the wings. Um, we're talking about the development of the thorax so that the wings are, in fact, much more separate. Uh, the fore and the hind wings are much more separated than in much later moths. Mm. Things like that. Now, this enigma moth, as it's uh, appropriately called, is um, is it only on Kangaroo Island? Is that right? In South Australia? We've only managed to find it on Kangaroo Island. Um, it's a very um, special spot on Kangaroo Island because... Um, there's a number of features that uh, the, the area has. One is it's on very um, sa- on sparse sand dunes, mm-hmm. so it's a very fire protected habitat. Okay. And the other thing about it is the the moths are associated with a cypress pine, and because of the sand dunes and the and the very um, um, exposed to the southern winds situation, even though it's protected from fire, it's exposed to the winds off the southern ocean, and all the pine trees are, are wind-thrown, so you can actually collect at the top of the trees walking around them, and that makes it a lot easier to find things on them. Yeah. Now, I don't have a good feel for the, the sort of distribution of moths around the world. Is it is it unusual for a moth to be so limited in terms of its distribution like this one? Um, not really. We just don't have evidence about how uh, how limited the distribution is. Um, colleagues of mine um, on Kangaroo Island have looked for it in other places for two years and not not found it in other places on the same type of tree. But that's really all that's been done. Hmm. Now this has been referred to as a as a living dinosaur. Effectively, is that is that accurate? Is it has it been literally around in its current form for that long? Oh yes, yes. It's been it's been around since uh, uh, you know yes since the dinosaurs. Mm. Mm. Ted, it's Chris KP here. It's it's my understanding that this moth um, sort of lives, uh, you know, flies around for a day, and that's pretty much it. You know, lives, mates, and dies. Um, if that's the case, and I also know that it has a very primitive jaw um, that's very different to, to modern moths. Does it eat? Um, no, it's got it's got effectively no mouth parts at all. It can't drink and it can't uh, chew. The very very early moths have chewing mouth parts, and then this is a little bit back further than that. So this originally would have had some sort of a sucking mouth part, and we we infer that from um, musculature structures inside the head because the actual mouth parts themselves are completely. How, how common is that, even in, in ancient moths, the idea that you don't actually consume anything? Um, pretty common. Okay. Yeah. And it's common in modern moths as well. Now, my, my understanding also, just reading some of the information um, that your colleagues sent through, Ted, is that this particular discovery told us a bit about moths and tongues. I have to say, I didn't know moths had tongues. What, what have we learned? Well, um, tongues are... 
tongue's a useful word for the proboscis, mm-hmm. and that's the sort of coiled, you know, how butterflies and moths, the highly developed ones, have this coiled proboscis that they use to feed from nectar or from dew. Mm-hmm. And that we're calling that a tongue. Mm. Now, one of the things that um, is definitely true of many of the species of, of regardless of whether it was plant, animal, or otherwise, um, from back in the sort of, you know, those hundreds of millions of years ago, is they all seem to be a bit bit nastier, a bit stronger, a bit more robust. Does this moth fall into that category? I know it's, um, I know reading about it, the, um, so there's sort of parts of the wings that are covered in scales? Yes. Um, all, all, all moths and butterflies have scales on their wings, with some sort of exceptions where most of those scales have been lost subsequently, but that's a characteristic of all the moths. Hmm. Um, why are you associating um, those early things with, uh, you know, big nasty things like dinosaurs is that those big nasty things left lots of fossil record. Yep. The moths left virtually no right. fossil record. There is a little bit of a fossil record, mostly in amber, mm-hmm. but that's that's about it. So the weak and the fragile, um, we only know about uh, through finding things like this that haven't changed very much. Mm. Now, Ted, tell us a little bit about the, um, the CSIRO's Australian National Insect Collection, because a lot of people wouldn't be aware of what's there. So the, what, what range of insects and what range of things are in that, that collection? Well, the collection covers all the major orders of insects, and I work with the Lepidoptera, and of course it's a spare time thing. Mm-hmm. Um, the point of the National Collection is that you need a collection like that to be able to identify things. Yep. Now, to be a, the, being able to identify things gives you a name, and once you've got a name, you can look in the literature. It, it, it brings all our knowledge within reach. Mm. Without a name, you can't do a thing. Okay. So uh, if I get something from uh, that's found in us, just been found on a crop in Darwin, uh, then I can start looking for a name, work out what that thing is, and immediately I've got information from Southeast Asia or wherever about that thing, and we know something about um, what what can be done about it. Now that brings me sort of to my last question, Ted, which is in terms of moths in Australia. How, how many of the, the moths that are in Australia do we actually know about and have classified? Um, uh, well, classified's probably a bit of a an optimistic statement yeah, yeah. because we we often don't know much about their relationships. But there are about eleven and a half thousand species with names. We have in the collection over sixteen or seventeen thousand species, and wow. we reckon that Australia's probably got something approaching thirty thousand species. Wow. And it's all guesswork, yeah. of course. Um, the national collection, the moths. There's about two. 2.3 million specimens and that because the ones that we can name are named in there and many of the ones that haven't got names are there um, that allows us to do these identifications 
Look, Ted, it's it's amazing stuff, and and no doubt a lot of work ahead of everyone in terms of uh, naming and, <laughs> and working out all those different um, moths that Australia has. Uh, good luck for the future on that, and um, great to hear from you. Good. Thank you very much, Shane. Dr. Ted Edwards, there is an honorary fellow from CSIRO's Australian National Insect Collection in Canberra, and has um, recently been working on that new Enigma moth, which we reported on uh, probably a month or so ago now. Mm. But um, incredible stuff. Just amazing how many insects we just don't know about or there. And and as uh, Ted rightly said, these are guesstimates. 30,000 is a guesstimate. Known unknown. And they tend to always be on the low side, those guesstimates we find too. Someone will come out next year and say it's actually (laughs) 120,000. They tend to be on the low side. Interesting stuff. I I just like something you put in context. You said, if you find it on a crop, yeah. And, and people don't often realize that I would imagine the identification of this has huge implications for agriculture yeah. that we sometimes don't realize. Yeah, it yeah. can, can have, yeah. yeah. What I'd like to see, though, I hope that uh, there's someone up there at that national collection who walks around, finds the boringest, dullest little looking moth and said, I'm going after that one. Because <laughs> yeah. you can imagine people going, oh, look at the iridescent blue in that one. I'll, yes, exactly. I'll play with that one. But the, the boring ones are often are the ones that, you, you know, the pantry moths you get at home. Yeah. I mean, someone must have paid attention to that at some stage. I suppose. Because you can buy stuff to kill it in the supermarket. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, yeah, look after the little moths. Don't worry, you know, can continue looking at the boring ones. 102.7. Now, we have in the studio with us Professor Michael Parker. Michael is uh, working at St. Vincent's Institute and also the University of Melbourne. Welcome, Michael. Morning. Now, you're working in the area of Alzheimer's, and we've had guests on the um, show before talking about Alzheimer's, but we've never talked about um, the use of the Australian synchrotron in sort of pushing this work forward. Um, You're after looking at a particular drug and how it functions. How does the synchrotron help you do that? Yeah, we've actually been looking at a few quite related drugs called antibodies, so last few years and uh, quite a few of those are going through clinical trials at the moment and uh, we've felt that if we can understand how they interact with the toxic species in Alzheimer's disease uh, that we'll be able to help work out which antibodies work and which don't. Hmm. So the synchrotron, um, as you've probably heard before, is like a giant microscope. Uh, and so we can actually visualise how these antibodies, which are proteins, interact with the toxic uh, uh, peptide species. Uh, and um, from that we can actually improve the antibodies, um, understand how they work, which parts of this toxic peptide mm. are important and so on. Now, let's talk a bit about that, the uh, the parts of the brain that are being affected by Alzheimer's. Talk us through what's going on there, because is, is this a treatment that halts it or reverses it? Uh, first off, we don't know the cause of Alzheimer's disease. Mm. Uh, there's a major theory that this toxic peptide is um, thought responsible for the, the disease, and it's certainly been shown that this peptide can actually actually uh, cause the death of neurons. Uh, I think generally we think either it causes the disease or uh, it triggers a cascade of uh, reactions that are actually responsible for the disease. Mm-hmm. So these antibodies are there to try to uh, attack the production of this toxic peptide. Hmm. Now, do you need to then determine when someone has Alzheimer's very early on for this to be an effective treatment? Yes, that's a very good point, a very, very important point. Uh, 
We now can see from the biomarkers of the disease, which principally is this toxic peptide, but a few other things, mm -hmm. that they start accumulating in our 30s. Okay. So, unfortunately, some of us probably already got Alzheimer's <laughs> disease. Oh, boy. <laughs> Thanks for that, by the way. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, so, um, so the trials with the antibiotics over the last few years, have, they've... Um, one in particular has shown that there was a, a, an arrest in cognitive decline uh, with people who were younger, so younger in their 50s. Mm -hmm. uh, and this has spurred the whole field on to think, well, we've actually got to be testing these drugs on people in their 30s, 40s mm -hmm. and 50s uh, with some basis that they might get Alzheimer's disease. Uh, the problem is with antibodies in particular, they're, they're proteins. They're very expensive to make. So if the trials are successful, then they're going to be a very costly treatment. Mm. Now, let's just link what you said there um, with 30s, 40s and 50s. My understanding, and correct me if I'm wrong here because I know these things change, change all the time, but is that there is a genetic basis to Alzheimer's. So you're in a high-risk group if a parent has had it. Is that true? Uh, there's a uh, less than 5% known at the moment. That's the genetic basis. Mm. That's early onset Alzheimer's okay. disease. But that information does drive the field because at least we've got a bit of an understanding Something. what causes the disease. Mm. Uh, there's probably other sorts of factors that produce the same sort of results for other people. So if we, if we determine that this drug is, is effective and its efficacy is good and so forth, why would we not use this like we use fluoride? Uh, Given it's such a preventative uh, type activity. Yeah. Well, first off... It's a protein, uh, so it's expensive, but also you can't swallow it. It can't be a pill okay. because we will just break down the protein in our body, so it has to be injected. Um, and I'm assuming, uh, we're talking into the arm here? Does it get past that barrier in, in the into, into the bloodstream and... Uh, very good point about the barrier. Yeah. It's, it's been a source of fear for a lot of people trying to develop drugs for Alzheimer's mm. disease mm. and other brain diseases. Yeah. Uh, somehow these antibodies do work. Uh, there's some uh, evidence to suggest they can get across the blood-brain barrier, um, but... Uh, that's sort of a bit of an open question. Hmm. Now, when, when we look at these drugs, I mean, one of the things I find interesting is that we have a drug in trials, but we're still trying to work out how it works. How do we, you know, I'm a physicist, so for me, you know, we kind of, we approach things a little differently. But with these complicated structures, I, I suppose this is the way we have to do it. How do we know that this is a, a drug worth trying in the first instance? Uh, well, we have got this theory of this toxic peptide mm -hmm. is is important for the disease and we can have uh, animal models mouse models where they make this peptide they get some of the properties of alzheimer's disease uh -huh. so you can test these drugs in animals and show that they um, the toxic peptide can disappear and you can also show that memory can improve in mice so then it goes into humans hmm. so now we're looking at it now with the synchrotron we're saying okay what particular parts of this i assume this has got to be a complex molecule i assume how, how many uh, physics person Question, how many atoms does it have in this sort of molecule? How big is it? Uh, if you're talking about the antibody, mm. um, the antibody would be about four or 500 amino acids. Okay. Um, the actual toxic peptide... Um, is about 40 amino acids, but we don't know what part of it is the most important part. So the, these antibodies in trials, there's more than one of them at the moment, mm -hmm. they're looking at different parts of the peptide. Now, when we talk about using the synchrotron to improve the drug, um, what are we specifically looking at there? What are we trying to find? Well, when we uh, determined the, st the structure recently, uh, we've 
we've also got some evidence that this antibody can react with other proteins. Mm -hmm. uh, and so there's proteins in our bloodstream that have similar amino acid sequences to the A-beta peptide. So with this structure from the synchrotron, we can actually try to design out those features would make it cross-reactive with other proteins. So it'll make the drug a lot more effective. Mm. And where are we in the trial sequence on this? Yep. So the uh, the antibody we've looked at specifically, uh, and one very related to it, is in phase three clinical trials, which is the the, the last phase. And uh, the, a, a part of those trials are happening in Australia right now. Mm. So hopefully by about 2017, we we'll know the results of those trials. Okay, that's not far off. I mean, you know, we normally talk about very very long cycles for these drug developments. Professor Parker, what sort of side effects do you see associated with the drug in those clinical trials? Uh, well, there's been a few of these antibody drugs and some of the other drugs too. Uh, with the antibody drugs, one of the worries we've got is if you treat late, there's already the, the, the plaques and fibrils mm. in the brain. And if you try to take those out, it could actually cause hemorrhaging. So, so some of the earliest drugs actually did cause hemorrhaging in the brain. Uh, I think these ones that are in clinical trials now are much more safer than that. Mm. Now, when we talk about clinical trials, I mean, one of the things that immediately pops into my mind is a relatively fast, you know, maybe a year or two. But when you talk about having to do this, you know, with people in their 30s and 40s and 50s, we're talking about decadal um, responses. Is that the way the, the clinical trial is set up to monitor um, how well these will work over a protracted period or are we somehow short-circuiting that time frame? Uh, short-circuiting to some extent. So this is where we get in the area of imaging. So mm -hmm. because we have to try to treat earlier, we think, uh, we then have to have the imaging technology so we can actually see some of these, like the toxic peptide, right, the plaques right. and so on in the brain. And so th there's been great leaps forwards in the last couple of years with that sort of... Yeah. yeah. Look, it's it's really interesting stuff, and it's great to see um, you guys down there at St. Vincent's Institute actually linking up with the synchrotron, which is, you know, I mean, there's, people may not know this, but there isn't one in every town, folks. They're actually quite quite few and far between around the world. So um, having having those medical capabilities and having it down there uh, is, is quite an extraordinary matchup. Now, in, in terms of um, next steps for um, work with the synchrotron, is it just more discovery of, of how, how these molecules line up and interact? Is that, is that the focus at the moment? Uh, in our Alzheimer's area, we've actually got our own antibody. So mm -hmm. the knowledge that we've um, found, we've we've developed our own antibody, which seems to be superior to the ones right. we think in the clinic. Great. So um, but the usual thing, and particularly in Australia, of trying to find the funding to go mm. from uh, basic discovery to... Um, Testing the clinic is, is a big problem. Yeah, that old chestnut. Well, Michael, look, I hope um, I hope you do get the money needed to, to pursue this because um, obviously Alzheimer's is a problem that is growing um, as we all manage to live longer and, and want healthier lives, and it's something that has a significant effect on people at a variety of ages, I suppose, too. Um, good luck with the work, and um, we hope to hear more about um, how this is going in the next few years. Okay, thank you for your support. Professor Michael Parker from St Vincent's Institute and the University of Melbourne um, working on Alzheimer's. Uh, diseases with uh, the Australian Synchrotron, which uh, we have had many guests on the show over the years. Three, triple, ah. 
we are joined in the studio now by Sandor Kazi. He's from Melbourne Girls College, not a student, obviously a teacher. Sandor, welcome to the studio. How are you going? Not too bad. Good morning. Now, you've spent some time uh, lately over at um, CERN, the International Physics Lab over there, um, just searching for the Higgs boson. Uh, yes, and other bits and pieces. Um, I was doing a PhD, oh, now... 10 years ago yep. or so, and um, yeah, part of that was heading over there, doing some um, work over there, building some of the um, parts of the Atlas experiment, mm, which is yeah, one of the yeah, six experiments yeah. there, so that was really interesting. I was also doing some theoretical work um, with, uh, who was it, uh, Ray Volkers and Robert Foote. Right, so yep, I know those guys. I, I yeah. thought you would, Shane, yeah. Yeah, current head of the School of Physics, I think <laughs> Ray is, yeah. yeah. Now, um, tell us, I mean, what was it like? I mean, people have these images, <laughs> and you know, for the, some people may have seen the movie about, about uh, the Higgs boson, it was really you know, spectacular. Um, but I mean, what, what was it like over there? Was was there a period of just excitement coming up? I mean, as excited as I am about the you know soon to be renamed Pluto planet, um, was was it just a buzz over there as things were getting started? Yeah, it was uh, great. Um, we were over there when when I was over there. We were um, using one of the. Um the accelerators, the SPS, which mm-hmm. is not the the it's large hadron yeah. collider, because I was still building um, bits and pieces of that. Yeah, but geez, there was a lot of work being done. Thousands of people there. Um, it's a huge complex, um, and it was yeah, it was really interesting meeting lots of different people from all the different institutions around the world. Um, everyone was really excited. You know, we were building them. Um, the silicon tracker mm. so you know sitting there um using a beam 24 hours a day and everything yeah. was pretty full on cool so stuff. That's good now let's talk a bit more about what you're doing now though because you're um, you've been a physics teacher there at uh, melbourne girls college for the last nine years um first of all what is it like being someone who teaches physics at a girls school i mean we we hear about this challenge of of getting girls involved in physics maths and and science and engineering subjects in general do, do you see that at, at the school? Um, well, this is one of the reasons that uh, about five years ago I saw a lecture um, at Melbourne University by Eric Mazur and it was called Confessions of a Converted Lecturer. Mm-hmm. And part of his work, um, or what he was doing, was he was just teaching the traditional lecture style. He was up there. Um, he's at Harvard. He thought his students were really great. He was getting really good reviews. You know, the student forms were filling out. Yep. Um, they were saying, yep. Great lecturer. And there was this, um, so he thought, oh, yeah, my students are really good. Um, and there was this uh, test called the Force Concept Inventory. And, it, and it's basically a test for understanding of Newton's laws. So he thought, oh, these other universities around America, they're not doing too well on this. I'll give it to my students. And lo and behold, he found his students were just as bad as the others. Yeah. So yeah. he was thinking, well, how are they passing the tests if they're not understanding anything? So he was looking at the traditional exam, of course, is, there's a formula, you plug it in, you turn the dial, you get it. And the other thing that he noticed um, was that there's a gender gap. So the students coming in, there's a a gap between the male and the female students. And even after the traditional lecture style, that gap still existed. Even though everyone improved, the gap was still there. And then he had this sort of like enlightenment moment during one of his classes where he just basically gave up and said, okay, everyone talk to each other. And he realised that then he saw students teaching each other. So he, mm. he came up, this about 20 years ago, with this peer instruction method. And one of the byproducts of that was that the gap decreased. So he wasn't particularly looking at girls' education, but he saw that the gap decreased. And in fact, 
at, when I went across there, his classes, now he's changed his style, he's doing a lot more of peer-to-peer and now group work, and his class is 50% female, mm. which is huge yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. over there. And so I was using that in my classes, and, and I find that the girls hopefully, really... Hopefully not 50% female in your class. No, it's 100%. <laughs> That's even better than, wow. Yeah, you could learn yeah. a lot from you. <laughs> so, yeah, and, and the girls really took to it. So, yeah, it's been really good, and um, we've built actually quite a good program there and um, using a lot of that peer instruction and mm. talking to the girls they, they love it mm. and also they talk to each other and the other thing about it is they're close to each other in their knowledge right. so mm. because I'm so far away sometimes what I say you think they're getting it but until yep. you delve deeper in their understanding they don't so talking to each other really helps them understand and they really enjoy that mm. now I want, to, I want to talk about that a, a bit more but before i do that i want to probe back to something you said earlier because i remember when i was teaching first year physics about five years ago now and there was this one particular area that was on the exam and this was one area where i had an amazing sort of demonstration that involved the students the bit that freaked me out was of all the questions on the exam it was the one that most of them actually did quite badly on now and I wondered whether, you know, how you sort of, you know, um, pull it apart and say, well, why is that? I mean, did they, because I suspect it's the part they'll remember 20 years on, but for some reason, mathematically on the page, they didn't do so well on that question, even though if I asked them now, five years later, I guarantee they'd all remember it and they wouldn't remember anything else from the course. <laughs> why is there that, why do you think, it, it, you, you talked about them sort of, you know, the expectations, that programming of how to learn. Is, is that the issue we've got? Um, the, other, the other issue is that, I mean, we come into the classroom, not many have really done high-level physics or any sort of mm. hard physics, and they've created their own model of the world in their brains, and a lot of students are still Arist- Aristotelian thinkers. So they come into it, and then when you show a demonstration or you do something in front of the class, most of the time that just reinforces their already misconceptions. So they'll look at it, they'll go, oh, I've seen this before. They'll switch off. They might right. remember it, yep. but have they looked at it in the new light? So that's where you have to start challenging, challenging them and trying to work out what the actual understanding is. So mm-hmm. there is there are ways of doing that, and um, that's some of the things I use. You know, you sit up there, you put up an understanding question, you have five responses, which I have. You get them to think about it themselves, they answer on their own. I put up what percentage of what class believes which statement mm-hmm. on that thing, and then they go and talk to each other, discuss it. And it's amazing because what happens is I know sometimes I don't even have to say anything. And then the next time I say, okay, answer it again, and you get up near 95% getting the correct answer. Right. So it's all about trying to get rid of their already underlying misconceptions, yeah. I, I think. That's mm-hmm. what I seem to see in the classroom. Yeah. It's interesting. It seems it seems that you're saying, um, and this makes perfect sense to me, that people will tend to hear what they want to hear. They'll they'll fit whatever you know you tell them into what they already believe. Do your students um, ever express um, a recognition of that in other classes? Do they ever sort of say we're, we're not being challenged enough, or we're not we haven't often got the opportunity to sort of understand this better? Um, I really haven't talked to them all that much about what happens in the other classrooms. <laughs> um, split the staff room in a big way. <laughs> but they do say in the physics, uh, talking to them, um, they say it seems to make more sense. So okay, sure. one of the things is in, in the year 12, year 11 courses that we have, there isn't, like I know in chemistry, some of them say there are, there are too many, um, you know, things that are not 
standard. So, for instance, in physics, you have your Newton's three laws. You just apply them. It, it makes sense once you understand Newton's three yes. laws that mm. it applies to everything. So too many exceptions. So there's yes, exactly. Yeah. In chemistry, they feel like there's this, and then there's oh, by the way, this exception, <laughs> this exception, and they don't. They're not happy with that. Yeah. They want to know why. There's most of the um, the students that I have, they really want to understand why. So they're always asking, so why is that? Why is that? And sometimes I have to stop myself because I go, well, really, you know, and they, you know, for instance, in nuclear physics at the moment the course involves protons and neutrons and they go but why does that happen i go well in fact there are quarks yeah. <laughs> and then under that you know there's the yeah. weak nuclear force and the strong yeah. and the gluons and all this but um they really want to understand mm. so when you give them that they're really satisfied mm. it's when then yeah i mean it's, it's very interesting because i've always had this this idea that we're we're generally most of us are born curious and somehow we beat it out of people mm-hmm. and you know by the time you get to year 12 um it, it's well and truly beaten out of you and and it's just it's just that um the way in which we learn now there, there must be other um science teachers at the school are they using similar techniques is this becoming common at the school or are you the the um you know the odd one out oh not the odd one out but because i've i mean i was very lucky to get the fellowship from um the hugh rogers Mm. fellowship part of the melbourne boston sister city group um that i went across and so i could present to the class i oh, sorry present to the staff and i have and in fact the other physics teacher has gotten right on board and he's loving right, it he's yeah. just saying oh this is you know the best thing since sliced bread and um he's really enjoying it and some other teachers have come in and i think they're starting to get that sort of idea in and even trying to get it across into other subjects like in maths mm-hmm. and, and, and how does it translate out so when when the students you have move on i mean you, that's where we really want to see the change what what do you seeing in, in that area um well i've talked to a few some of them have gone on like some of the students have, might not have gone into physics but they have gone into science mm-hmm. like i know yep. well, one of my students from about four or five years ago she's now at Weihai, so she's now beginning i think a phd there and okay. so she it's not something that she would have thought she would have done mm-hmm. but being introduced to the sciences and taking it on to year 12 and then realizing actually i can do this it's not as difficult as everyone makes it out to be mm. and yeah they've moved on yeah i mean i have to say you know personally i don't care whether they do science or not but i do care if they think scientifically i think that's one of the yeah. big problems in our system we have politicians who all think like economists and if we you know, if we had a few more people wandering around who had that the, the physics process thinking in their heads then you know we would be a bit more rational about the way we make decisions and the way we respond to things and and challenges that our country faces so i mean that's something that i think is very important now in terms of the, the students i mean this this must be something that's challenging to control sometimes where you sort of hand over to them and let them let them essentially guide the class, aren't you? I mean, it's it's not the traditional role of the teacher and the student. Um, but uh, but they enjoy it. So I, I don't mind if they, you know, start discussing things a lot deeper. It's not too bad because, you know, they come. you get to a point, you see it in the class, okay, everyone's got it, then you, you sort of, you quieten them down, you get back to... Mm-hmm. Um, asking the next question, but I don't, I'm quite happy in my class to have really robust discussions yep. and just to make sure it's controlled. That's the only thing. Yeah. Otherwise you get <laughs> Stop kids, throwing cheers. Yeah, kids <laughs> jumping on top of each other. Well, look, Sander, it's, it's very interesting and, uh, it's great to see physics actually being taught in a way that engages students, in particular, um, girls in high school, because this is something that, you know, is, is problematic and getting more and more people, um, involved from both genders, I think is, is, is crucial to these fields because we know that balance pays off in the long run so congratulations on doing that and i hope it continues to be a you know enjoyed program by your students and um they must love the fact
fact that their teacher you know was at CERN and did all this stuff. I mean, it's a, you know, I think my physics teacher once you know did a few weeks working at CSIRO, and I was pretty excited about that. So <laughs> I think he probably should have stayed there a bit longer. Um, nothing against CSIRO. I mean, just that he could have used more experience at a great place like CSIRO. So you got to qualify these comments. Sandra, thanks so much for coming in, and uh, good luck. Oh, thanks for having me. Sandor Kazi is from Melbourne Girls College physics teacher there, uh, showing uh, new ways of uh, teaching. Folks, we're, we're pretty much out of time. Dr. Ray, thank you very much. Thank you, Dr. Shane. It was fun. Yep. No, you're okay after all those uh, chemistry comments? Yeah, sure. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and Dr. Catherine, I think you're in the medical stuff. I don't know what that is. I mean, we have the physics intense moment, so you can just stay there. That's oh, right. I love it. It's great fun. <laughs> and Chris KP, always as a, always, always a an absolute yeah. dream, Dr. Shane. <laughs> uh, Liv's been doing our Twitter feed, folks, so if you want to uh, tune into what's been happening on the show, you can uh, follow us on Twitter. Um, I think we have about double the number of followers as Martin Sheen now, uh, and almost as many as Charlie Sheen. <laughs> <laughs> Got that wrong? I just showed my age. I think. <laughs> Damn it! We will see you again next week. Remember, science is everywhere, and for tomorrow, May the Fourth, be with you. This has been a podcast from Three Triple R, one hundred two point seven FM in Melbourne, truly independent community radio. Want to hear more? Check out our website at rrr.org.au.